Yeah, and then, um, and it's funny because you're Catholic, right? So um, the reason that the that the Medici's and the Templars came up with this bill of exchange thing is because it was a way of making a loan without making a loan. So the Catholic Church at the oh time had gosh. strict laws against yeah usury, so, not yeah. loans, but usury. Usury, well, usury, the collecting of interest off of yeah, a, you could make a loan, you just couldn't profit from it. Right. So with a bill of exchange, they would arrange it at, in such a way, and and it really was this way. Um, whatever city your customer is going to, they're getting this bill of exchange because they need to buy something in another city whatever city this customer of yours is going to is going to have a different currency than your own. You know, this is an era of city states in a lot of Europe and uh, people are, mm. are going between, you know, present day France and present day Germany and present day Italy and all up to London. And so the, so the way, so the way that they do this is they call it a bill of exchange because we're not making a loan. We are exchanging currencies. We're exchanging florins for pounds sterling between Florencia and London, right? We're not making a loan of florins to be paid back in florins with interest. What we're doing is making, we're advancing florins to exchange for pounds in another city. And I agree with you that in the spirit of the rule against usury, that does not violate it. And there should be fees for services such as that. And I also think that when you get down to like financial investing, I think the idea of usury is a little bit different. I'm not defending interests or used whatever. I think the church went wrong in abandoning that, but, mm -hmm. uh, but there, oh, actually but I think interest is good. But carry yeah. on. Yeah. So I think that the it was if somebody needs a loan for something, you can't take advantage of their poverty or their need. Mm -hmm. But if you are trying to speculate on something, then yes, of course, you should be compensated for the time value of money, for the risk, like all of those things. I don't think violate any kind of moral law. And of course, it motivates people to. So I have a sister who she's like the bank of our family. So everybody, mm -hmm. when everybody needs any money, always I've asked her money, money many times. I always pay her back whenever, and she charged whatever, 3% interest, 5% interest. Then she stopped charging interest because she got it in her head that it was bad, and I'll mm -hmm. never borrow money from her again. It was almost like an evil plot. Like she, because I don't want the, I don't want to take her money. I wanted it, you know, yeah. I, I was like, I would give her more than the bank. I was like, hey, give me the money. I'll give you 5%. Exactly. It was great. It was yes. a great system. However, if I were on my ass and she's like, I'll give you right. the money for 25%, you know, yes, she's going to hell. But <laughs> yeah, so I think that I, I don't know the law, the moral law on usury, but I do believe that there are nuances. Of course, my friend, the priest who listens, he's going to, I'm going to get an email. He's going to tell me like the whole story or whatever. Actually, he'll say, it was good that you pointed that out, but the, this is a nuance that you missed and whatever. But yes, I will, I will probably have to get a little educated on that. But yes, I think there's, there's a good thing and there's, uh, and then there's the exploitation. If you, if that does happen, just please copy me on the conversation because <laughs> I would just love to read what he has to say. I can tell by your previous life that you probably have Catholic roots yourself because you're an Irish dancer. A professional Irish dancer makes me think you're Irish. Yeah, um, close the, uh... You're not Irish? I never heard of an Irish dancer who wasn't Irish. 
Oh, well, so the, so Purcell is an Irish name um, yeah. that originated in Tipperary. And bef- it was, uh, yeah, it originated in Tipperary for sure. Um, the way, the problem with my genealogy is that um, I, I went and maybe it was a vanity project, I don't know, but I'd go and do the ancestry thing. And the, the issue is that while they came from Ireland, that was like back in the 1680s. So... I'm just kind of American, you know. I don't. I oh, could, I could say, you're like a practically Mayflower. So why would you do Irish dancing? Because um, it's cool. Why did I? Because I love up? it. I did it when I was a kid, but I'm a little brown to be taken seriously in that crowd of, <laughs> of Maureens, you know. And I'm like, no, my mother's name was Malarkey. But uh, yeah, and it's I wasn't. Lot, it's super, a lot more diverse now. It's so fun, though. It's super, super fun. And I caught your. Uh, short on your YouTube channel. I just absolutely love something about Irish dancing. I absolutely love. I would love to be able to do it. It feels like such a fun thing to do. But I would have thought that you had some kind of Catholic connection. But you would be interested in my priest explanation uh, because you cannot see what I just said about that distinction, or you want to know the actual real facts. Like, is it? Are you skeptical, or oh, you just yeah. want to be educated? No, I just want to. I yeah, no, just for educational purposes. Yeah, I'm just curious. I'll, I'm just curious. Yeah. Cause all I, yeah, cause all I know about what we just talked about is, um, how the, so Raymond River, he used the writings of, uh, San Bernardino who was alive in like 1380 to 1460, something like that. So he's there in the, in the Medici banking era. And then he used another one called, um, Sante D'Antonio who was, who was writing it about the same time. And his take on it, because I don't read Latin, so I'm probably never going to go and read directly Bernardino and Antonio had to say. Um, but his take on it is that essentially the financial players of the day, the, the financial families would, it was it was this game of cat and mouse where they would come up with ways of financing oh. and then they would run it by the priests. And there were favorable priests who would put a rubber stamp on it and say, yes, this doesn't violate the law of usury. And then there were other ones who were a little more strict who would say, no, 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 this bill of exchange thing you're doing is definitely interest. You know, I might actually be wrong. It might be that financial capitalism technically is against Catholic social teaching. Absentee ownership. It is possible it is possible. Uh, now I'm going to have people go nuts because I was absolutely raised. My father, <laughs> my uncle was a priest and he turned me on to Murray Rothbard. So like for me yeah. to even think for one second that what I just said could be true is like makes my stomach turn. However. Yeah, that's a cri- crisis internally. Yes, it is possible that absentee ownership is frowned upon. And that's, you know, the root of financial capitalism and all that. It is possible. Boy, I, I guess I do need some schooling. So, Father R, bring it. Yeah. <laughs> bring it. <laughs> so, yeah, keep going. Um, okay, so why does sterling go away? So, sterling is serving this world reserve currency purpose, and it does so from, you know, call it the mid-19th century all the way up until most people think 1944. Um, so there's a, there's a, a quote about this that I want to read off, uh, from an economist named Perry Merling, who is, uh, a super expert on money and banking, and he's not a libertarian or even, um, dissident type of thinker in the slightest. He's, he's a very mainstream guy. Um, but 
his but it, but his take on this and and he just said it in an interview one time is he goes so most people think that the global monetary system was created in mind of Zeus in a little hotel in New Hampshire in 1944 and that is just a myth so 1944 being the year of the Bretton Woods conference at the Wash at the what is it the Mount Washington hotel in um New Hampshire and so and and it you know it's it's a it's expected that people would understand it this way because the way that history is taught is like, okay, it's, it's never really taught in terms of economic relationships. It's always taught in terms of hierarchies. It's always taught in terms of this is who was at the top and they yes. made this rules and this is what happened. And after. it's the, who's at the top, like titularly, like the monarch, the right, king, right. it's in yeah, the yeah. books, but who's really yeah. at the top, we yeah. don't know. Like Abe Lincoln, you hear about Abe Lincoln, you don't hear about uh, Salmon P. Chase and yes. how Salmon P. Chase and his B. Jay Cook, who uh, lost his ass in the Panic of 1873 and was America's biggest investment banker for you know a period of several years, was actually responsible for designing the monetary system that proceeded for 50 years after the civil war. Like you don't hear about that shit. No. If you read Murray Rothbard, you will, you know, cause that, <laughs> yes. that was Murray Roth's game. He was like, and this was a really good friend of this guy. And so they came oh. up with this policy in order Ooh. to sell them, you know? Oh, I like that. That's what Adam from Deborah gets red pilled calls, uh, parapolitics or metapolitics but it's when yeah. you connect those dots behind the scene I'm, that's a good one yeah it's just the simple idea that it's kind of uh kind of important to know who's making the rules you know at least yes some, there there may be more information embedded in who's making the rules than what the rules actually are yeah that's actually a very important point that you just made because what the rules actually are, it's very hard to penetrate what the intended right. consequences really are. But if yeah. you know who it is, you know what they're after, and then yeah. you can reverse engineer, well, I can see how that could happen. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. exactly. And that's why we yeah. are, not you, but I don't know what you are, but that's what, it can, that's what the conspiracy theory approach to history is, is that, well, if mm -hmm. you know who's behind it, then you understand that those consequences were intended. Yeah, I mean, I think most people of name thought would call me a conspiracy theorist. So, you know, okay. I hate to I hate to slur you like that in the, in the real no, world. No, no, I know you're in the real right, world. <laughs> okay, keep going. Um. Oh, uh, let's see. Okay, so yes, the uh, the dollar pound parity. Right. So just to give you some frame of reference here, the dollar pound parity in terms of uh, which came about as a result of the gold ratios, the pound sterling to gold and the dollar to gold is about 486. So it takes uh, throughout the 19th century, if the dollar and the pound trading at parity, which means neither of them would be devalued or have a premium to their gold value, then it would take $4.86 to buy one pound sterling. So, and that was the exchange rate for leading so up long. until about, yes, for a very long time. I used to watch old movies in my sister's room and yep. she mm. always it would, have been would in the say, old movies. How, you know, they would say like a pound and I'm like, how much is that? She's like, that's $5. 
Yep. She always said that. But yeah, maybe it was the black and whites. I don't remember black and whites. <laughs> yeah, the the black and whites definitely would have had it because that uh, because that exchange rate was Oh man, I wish I remembered the first the very first time that they devalued. I want to say it was after Bretton World Woods? War 2, but I could be oh. wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, so essentially one of the main points that I really like to drive home is that the dollar began taking the mantle away from sterling long before this agreement in a, in 1944. The other thing about the agreement in 1944 that people need to understand is that nobody wrote in the Bretton Woods agreement that people now had to start transacting their international trade in dollars. Right. Like that's that's not part of the agreement as far as the currency that people choose to to hold their savings in and the currency that, um, you know, again, thinking about the U.S. importer and the French exporter, uh, there's no iron law within Bretton Woods that says they have to transact in dollars when somebody in Brazil is something from. Uh, when somebody in Brazil buys something from Russia, there's no iron law that says that they have to transact. Like that's not a part of Bretton Woods. It is literally the international money market that decided that that was how it was going to be. And it happened gradually over a period of a couple decades. So after, so what happened in World War I is that essentially this was the first boost to the United States. Um, I don't want to say the United States economy because everybody pays an opportunity cost in war. And there's another economic myth that's very common out there, which is like, oh, we had a war and the economy boomed. Yeah, the broken window. It's the broken window fallacy, exactly. What could you have had if you didn't spend all that money and resources on war? Even when I just look around and think about subsidized interest rates or even use of shoddy materials, I think there have been 123 billion people on Earth. And if you drive around England, I don't know if you've spent much time in England, they're, everything's made of brick. They had bricks, mm-hmm. and you see the corner. So I have a friend who lives in a house that was built in the 1600s. And it's not like yeah. worth more. It's just, we're just, why we tear houses down and build them up again, it's yep. it's it's like, a, it's that thing. It's that fallacy. I mean, it works mm-hmm. because transactions is where people make money. That's That's like another problem with the kind of, financial capitalism thing is that transactions uh, have a lot of value to these people. So, um, Mm -hmm. but, but think of the amount of even like spiritual and intellectual progress we could make if we were freed up from just every single lifetime, starting over from scratch to build the house and make the clothes. I mean, it's, it's really a tragedy. Yep. You got to rebuild London because it's been bombed out all through World yes, War II. Yes. You got to rebuild Richmond because, you know, William T. Sherman completely destroyed it, you know, civilians included. And we do it ourselves anyway, that's now. A, that That's yeah. why I hate interest rate manipulation. I, I even hate the interstate highway system. I don't like wars for oil. I don't like any yep. of these things that subsidize transactions because then you would, uh, you would correctly value those those trade-offs and i you would value space you would value space and the the time that it takes to travel if a firm had to create their own infrastructure surround in order to get to wherever that office or wherever that storefront was located you know they would co-locate a lot more or we would have had i said long before the zoom age there would be 
uh, telecommuting. Like you would have mm-hmm. that for better or worse, but it would have been organic and we would have had right. some mm-hmm. control over it. And then you'd probably have houses with greenways, neighborhoods without roads. Like there's so many possibilities of how to make it good. And, but you know, you relinquish control and they have that, that's, they take these things that are good or bad and they plug it into that central vision they have. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. about 15 minute cities and stuff like that. It's like oh yeah, for story sure. For yeah. Another, yeah, I did a lot of shows on yeah. that, but yeah, I mean, it really, it does matter that they, you know, how they control the, the infrastructure, whether it's like physical or financial. Yeah. What is the, inter- what is the interstate highway? You know, new deal liberals or progressives or whatever you want to call them. They're all like, Oh, and then we, and then FDR at the interstate highway system or, uh, no, Eisenhower. World War II, right. Eisenhower, you know, the, the, the Republican, all the Democrats love or the Republican, all the progressives love. We had the interstate highway system and that made the economy boom. And it's like, you know what else the interstate highway system? Well, it didn't make the economy boom. Okay. A road is very simple and we've had roads, roads for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Okay. There's nothing magical about a road that makes your economy boom. But I'm pretty sure I've heard you say these, probably these exact words on the show, but the interstate highway system subsidizes automobile travel. And Chinese imports. Imports right. from other places. There's no, yeah, there's no factory big enough that that only one in the whole world can exist. There's no, there's no product that would justify a factory in China and not a factory in North America. And it totally yeah. eliminates these transaction costs. I agree. And his argument, I'm telling you, I learned about that like in fifth grade, and I was like, that makes no sense. It's like it's good for mm-hmm. defense, so we can get stuff around. I'm like. It's an open door for invaders. Like that goes both yeah. ways. Like unless you are mm-hmm. ready and willing that you've actually detonated every single solitary mile of highway, that highway uh-huh. goes both ways. Yeah, I actually didn't think about that. that I mean, I could be wrong, yeah. but it seems to me no, that no, I mean, you know, if you live in the heartland, yeah. I don't I don't know if you want like all roads lead to Iowa. <laughs> No, no, definitely not. I don't. You know what yeah. I mean? Have all the munitions <laughs> along, like you know, thirty miles inland, all the way around. Like have all that stuff right by the coast and protect the mainland, mm-hmm. the interior, yeah. the farmland. Don't you know? Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that is that is a, something that retreating armies have often done is they will they will destroy their own transportation routes once they've used them, whether it's a railroad yes. or a road. Yeah, it's a major sure the vulnerability. Did that as they, yes, the Russians yeah, as they were getting scorched out of Earth. Yes, definitely, yep. it's a vulnerability. There would have been a better way. It's obvious he was not. That wasn't his purpose. You know. Yep. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, it could be so much better than it is. I anyway. that's you know what? Are you making fun? Because that is like you know just lament, lament, lament. I'm not. I'm not lamenting. I just I, sometimes I like to envision uh, what it is like. I, I you know we have to resign ourselves. I don't think there's a, a you know I cannot. I don't know the path of liberty in this place and time right now. Like I just right. I can't see. I've lost the thread there. But I think it is nice sometimes to visualize okay what might have been but that helps also to understand what could be so it's not right. just a black pill like lamenting complaining it's also you know visionary in a way yeah yeah i, I agree and there is um there's certainly a case to be made for that in private digital money even though i think a lot of the private digital monies out there are uh, actually created by the ia in order to uh in in order to uh 
take legitimacy away from good private money, but um, that's probably a conversation for a different day. Um, but okay. yes, definitely. Point, I'm going to write that on. That'll be volume three. Okay. Sounds good. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of a potential out there for innovations, you know, carve outs, uh, opportunities for people to separate from these crappy systems that the state creates. And you don't have to have, you know, a libertine president in order to do things like that. I think there's a lot of local things people can do, a lot of entrepreneurial things people can do. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely I try my best to approach it from a place of hope rather than, you know, blackpilling, like you said. Yeah, sure. I mean, and these people who obviously have a disproportionate influence about over where the world is going, I actually do not think that their goal is to destroy humanity and the earth like it might be no they need it but yeah that's what i makes don't the profit th- yeah they don't really <laughs> believe i don't i don't really think they believe that they're ascending to another planet or uh, right. entering into the afterlife i mean they and they want cool places to go and they want to do stuff. So. Yeah. like i just i feel like it's not it it's not as draconian as all that but you know it would be nice if we weren't like whatever just uh considered subhuman because we don't pull the strings but anyway okay so where are we in our narrative uh yeah so we're at basically between world war one and world war two so um so this era here is where the United States dollar starts to take over these these roles that Sterling is playing. It's, like you said, a clearinghouse for international trade and people around the world, be it firms, uh, banks, and to a certain extent, governments. There were several governments, believe, after World War One that decided to start pegging their currencies to the dollar. Now, you did have other governments, especially in Europe. In the Great Depression, you had what was called the Sling Block, which was made up of countries that went completely off of the gold standard. And so instead of gold, they pegged the, the value of their currency to the pound sterling. And so, so that was definitely a thing. Um, but by I believe by the 1920s, and I'll, I'll go back and double check that, uh, but I believe the first few countries to start pegging to the dollar came about in the 1920s. And they were uh, it was common in South America. Um, so over here on, on our, our side of the pond, um, a lot of this foreign trade business between South America and its trading partners in these different countries was being done in dollars rather than sterling. And the way that we know that is actually, again, another super mainstream source, um, who wrote exorbitant privilege and, um, uh, another book about the dollar about the dollar system. Um, but his name is Barry Eichengreen. He used to be a, uh, the reserve board governor, I think. So super mainstream. But what he did was go back and look at, okay, if if trade is being financed in dollars, trade is being done using these money market instruments that we talked about earlier, these bills of exchange, which is essentially a promise to pay some currency in 30, 60, 90 days or so. And those, like we talked about, they originated all the way back in the Middle Ages. Now, if the dollar is starting to take over as the reserve currency, then when we look at the balance sheets of major London banks or major banks around the world, then we should start to see a lot of those bills being denominated in dollars, which is to say the promise to pay is in dollars ultimately rather than sterling. We should start to see that 
in oh, this time. And so that's the evidence that he uses to kind of show, okay, as you go through the 1920s and the 1930s, you start to see more of these bills stack up in the city of London. And the interesting thing is that this activity is being done in London, but it's happening in dollars instead so, of sterling. And the de- so it's the demand that's driving the supply. And then what do they do about the supply? They have to meet the supply. Um, yes. And But fractional reserve banking allows that. So what, what year are we talking about here? So this is the 1920s up through the Great Depression. And now international trade kind of broke down in the Great Depression, so that is and, But a, we had fractional reserve banking by then, right? That was post-Fed? We had, fra- we had fractional reserve banking even under Before a gold standard. Before the Fed? Yeah, Before yeah, the yeah. Fed. So even on the gold standard- um, But this is you still know, a gold were, standard a little bit, right? Oh, yes, yeah. So the, right. in the era we're talking about, we have a Fed and we have a gold standard. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's what we're okay, talking about. So, but I think the, I was just trying to understand that. So, it sounds like the obligation to pay in dollars preceded the actual dollar being created to to or is that not correct? Um, I actually so the source is if going back to uh, going back to the sterling system, what ultimately made financing trade in that particular currency possible was the desire for participants in the economy all over the world to hold that currency. So my view of it is that the desire to save in dollars ultimately leads to this active this international trade activity being done in dollars. Because okay. what happens okay. is you have dollar deposits that find their way into these banks. That's right. a source of funding for the banks. And so they're gonna, you know, they're gonna use dollars in order to write these bills of exchange. Okay. Okay. So and that's um that one is as far as which came first, the chicken or the egg. Again, yeah. I I I truly think in the time that I've spent studying this this change between um, the British pound sterling and the dollar as you know the global currency standard. Uh, I really do think that it is ultimately the desire to hold that currency that mm-hmm. precedes okay. all of the credit, all of the right. international okay. trade settlement. Um, there may, you know, I, I I haven't seen an opinion that was you know totally different from that. You know, there may be, but that's that's kind of my that's okay. my view. I accept that. Yeah, from from what I can from what I can tell, you know. Um, so so yeah, so you have that. And then, so not only do you have all of this, all of this bills of exchange activity that's indicating that international trade is being done in dollars, but, uh, by the late 1920s, you actually have some years in which foreign central banks are holding more dollars than they are pound sterling. So they're so they basically switch off between World War One and World War Two. There are a handful of years where the dollar, uh, where the U.S. dollar makes up a greater share of FX reserves than the pound sterling. Uh, most of the reserves are in gold, right? Because we were on a gold standard at that point, and the central banks did make a point to hold. You know, they did make a point to maintain gold. Um, the portion of it that was made up of foreign currencies, paper foreign currencies, you had some years where you would have more dollars in those FX reserves than sterling, and then you had other years where you would have more sterling than dollars. And then that, so there's this, uh, so you you really have this 20-year period where it's 
the dollar is slowly creeping up on the sterling's role. Um, not everybody in the world is certain that the sterling is going to go away. In fact, most people probably don't think that the sterling is going to go away. Most people think that eventually the world is going to go back to a sterling system, ultimately. Um, but as we know, that's not how it happened. And so there's this, like I said, you know, there's some years where sterling is dominant. There's other years where the dollar is dominant. And then who ends up top, who ends up on top? That ultimately comes down to World War II. So again, the United States gets to capitalize on this fact is just, you know, dumb luck. We have two oceans that separate us from the rest of the world. We're a lot harder to invade. We're a lot harder to attack. So that benefited us in World War I, right? So we got to supply Europe with all the weapons that it wanted. As far as I know, we didn't sell to the Germans and the, um, you know, the central powers, but we may have, you know, behind some back door. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but, you know, the United States got to benefit from the fact that Europe is losing. We were the benefactors of Europe losing all of its gold or losing a significant amount of its gold to pay for all of these goods because we were the ones supplying those goods war effort. And then in World War II, we had a lot more of a role militarily. We were in the war for longer. I don't know. Um, I don't know how many folks will already know this, but World War One, the U.S. came in at the tail end. We were only there for One I think year. it was less than a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think it, uh, my great great uncle was in World War One, I, I believe. Yeah, they, he got shipped over there. I think he was drafted, um, and he came definitely came back with shell shock. What a um, ridiculous he, war that was for yeah. us. I mean, there were more Germans as American citizens than English. They were literally deciding which side of the war to go in on. Ugh. Yeah, I have a book here yeah. that someone just texted me about. Did you ever read this? And I read it twice, The Hidden History of World War One. I'll have to write that one down. Oh, yes. it's. Uh, I actually can look at the text from today because he writes who. I think it's Doherty and um, my friend James sent that to me. Uh Doherty, Jerry Doherty, and I think there's another author, I forget the name, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that's, I would, I would love to read that. It's nicely written, too. Like, it's fun okay. to read, it's easy to read. And I, I think understanding how the dollar got its role in the first place is, like, once you have that foundational knowledge, it's really easy to look at a headline about, oh, the... Brazilians and the Argentinians are going to come up with a clearing currency union between the two so that they don't have to use dollars. And like, I look at a headline like that and I just laugh. Cause yeah, because it, it doesn't no just, sense. you don't just snap your fingers and there it goes. Yeah. Context is yeah, really exactly. important. And you, it, it, you do have to have a deeper understanding. Sometimes I kind of slap myself on the wrist for just drive by assessing things. And then I think once in a while, I'm like, mm -hmm. you know what? Th this is way more complicated than just. Yeah, you can laugh at that headline, but for me to laugh at that headline would be arrogant because I really actually don't know for sure that you can't just snap your fingers and, and make those things happen. But I think I'll have a better sense sure. of it now and then I'll better understand yeah. what you're saying about why that isn't happening because that is part of the next chapter of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and with special attention to this idea of a BRICS clearing currency that, you know, brush or Russia, Brazil, Russia, <laughs> India, China, and uh, South America or South Africa, geez, um, are going to get together and supplant the dollar because they want to. You know why I'm suspicious of that? Because 
it that ex uh, that expression bricks was introduced you probably know in like an academic paper from the west of someone if i recall correctly like observing it yeah i think it was an investment banker oh you think it was who, an investment uh, banker i felt like that was an academic who coined that I'll term i'll have to go back because, i'll have to go back and look but my uh, thing Jim is records mentions it in this oh, book oh oh okay well let me just see who did it because Jim O'Neill, uh, an acronym started in 2001, Jim O'Neill, Goldman Sachs economist for Brazil, right, later South oh, okay. Africa's added to become, so we're, I was wrong about that, but you were right. Um, well, he's an economist, not an investment banker, but. Uh, yeah, I was wrong too. Not really. <laughs> Less wrong than I was. But no, my point is that um, when you see something like that get a lot of air right away, mm -hmm. just really take off right away, even though. It seems like it's equally likely that a hundred other things would happen. And then even mm -hmm. like 10 years later, when it kind of felt like it was stalling, I was like, are people still saying bricks, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, still and still and still. And then, and it's, and now again, it's, it's still in the news. And that to me, it feels like that was a little insider knowledge that this is something that was going to be supported. You know, it wasn't just a, an idea or an observation. It was really a plan. And whether it gets mm -hmm. comes to fruition or is it just used as a foil, I don't know. But, you know, it feels artificial to me, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I would I would say that it's um it's it's not organic. And the way that Sterling took over the world was not on purpose. The people at the Bank of England never said, oh, hey, you know, we want to be responsible for clearing all of the world's trade in our banking system. They never set out to do that, but it's just what happened. And even the Federal Reserve never really wanted that responsibility either. Um, there's a, a lot of discussion in the basically between World War II and like the 70s of Kind of how much of a pain in the ass it is to be a reserve currency, because whenever things go bad in somebody else's monetary system, everybody goes to your central bank and says, please give me some dollars. Otherwise, my economy is going to collapse. Did you ever hear that like Montague and those guys cooked up the Fed as a backstop for the European central banks because they didn't have the flexibility to do it? Well, yeah, I think that's uh, that's what Murray Rothbard kind of gets at okay. in his history of money and banking. Do you think yeah, that's true? Yeah, because Montague, um, so I th I think that the reason that they wanted a central bank in the U.S. is because they were tired of what happened in the U.S. ending up on the bank of its doorstep. Uh, I certainly think that was part of it. But also because it, it would just be easier with central bank coordination, it would be easier to have a cooperative government in the United States, I think. Yeah, because these these the people who organized the the Federal Reserve System and the people who were managing the Bank of England at the time were all very well intertwined. You know, we're talking about JP Morgan, Warburg. Um I don't I don't think right. I forgot it was an international when exactly Montague Norman was yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and it was, you know, the Bank of England uh, bankers definitely wanted the U.S. to have a central bank for a very long yeah. time. There's yeah. no disputing that. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, th I think it was I think it was so that the so that the U.S. could basically organize its own bailouts kind of thing um, so that the Fed could 
so that the Fed could bail out the banks rather than, you know, the bank of them having to send gold to the um, to the U.S. And there's another motivation there, like we talk about, uh, like we were talking about in the 70s earlier, the, the desire to maintain gold and not have to ship it anywhere. You know, that's that's something that's a thread that runs through government, mm. like monetary policymakers and the Treasury Department's. And in individual banks, there's an there's a desire to only have to ship gold when you absolutely have to, and minimize how many times you run into that situation. Absolutely, like they just don't want to they don't want to move gold. They w- really would prefer to do everything on a ledger. That's I think that's the case for all bankers. You're right throughout history. Right. Um, so so we get up to the end of World War II. Um, the U.S. has again supplied European war effort to a great deal. Most of Europe is, especially France and Britain, are in a huge deal of debt to the United States. And the United States doesn't say, uh, the United States doesn't write off France and England's debt. And it's, it's really funny because they, they don't have, they don't have much of a say in how many, uh, how much reparations are going to be owed by the Germans. You know how the reparations debt for the Germans was just huge and how that ended, you know, basically ended in hyperinflation and crashed the German economy and probably led to the rise of Hitler and all those things. Um, The United States didn't much say or, and didn't care to have much say in what the debt burden of Germany was going to be, but they did look at Britain and France and say, we understand that you have your problems we still would like our money back, please. <laughs> and so when you when you put those two things together, where are Britain and Germany going to, or where are Britain and France going to get that money? They actually end up sort of they actually end up getting it from Britain. Or excuse me, not Britain. I'm getting all these countries mixed up. They actually get end up getting those dollars in the form of reparations payments from Germany. So rather than demanding gold marks, they'll demand dollars, and then they'll use the dollars to pay off their own debt to the United States. And so behind, so behind that reparations ordeal between Germany, uh, France, and Britain is the United States who's saying, hey, France, hey, Britain, um, yes, we have all of your gold now, but we still sold you all of these bonds, and we would like to be paid back. And so, um, so that, so that's what happened between mm-hmm. World War One and World War Two. Um, at the end of World War Two, the Allies are are once again in debt to the United States. The Fed has printed a huge deal, uh, a huge ton of money in order to pay for the war. They were much more involved in paying for World War II than they were in World War One. But the interesting thing about the United States this time is they accumulated a lot more gold throughout the war than they did in World War One. So the U.S. ends up having two thirds of the monetary gold stock of the world at the end of the war. Wow. Yeah. And so when you when you think about it this way, it's like, did Bretton Woods really decide that the dollar was the reserve currency or did the dollar did the become fact that they had all the gold? <laughs> they had all the gold. They literally they were had the, the reserve, reserve currency. Whether you, right. you know, you don't have to even call it that. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So, so that's where we're at at the end of World War Two. And when you think about it that way, it's like, okay, it's pretty logical. If I'm an international banker, an international investor. The U.S. looks like a very safe to be. The U.S. dollar looks like a safe place to be. It is still 
ultimately convertible to gold, even though I can't do it. So the thing about the gold standard after World War II is that individuals in the United States cannot take dollars to the treasury and say, I would like gold, please. That all ended in 1933 when FDR confiscated everybody's gold on I think it was mm-hmm. May 1st. And then they t- <laughs> so they confiscated it for $20 an ounce, 20.67. Is that so when he repealed prohibition? <laughs> A little um, distraction oh, there. Shit, I don't know. <laughs> I think maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I don't know. Actually, I don't know actually. I think um, it might be. Yeah. Um so they so they bought gold from the American people for 2067 an ounce and then less than a year later in 1934 they turn around and start selling gold to the rest of the, the treasury turns around and starts selling gold to the rest of the world for $35 an ounce so you know mm-hmm. put over a barrel people <laughs> were um but it, yeah so so the dollar price of gold from um from 1790, the founding, all the way up until 1934, was 2067, uh, bar a couple periods of non-convertibility there. Um, Abraham Lincoln took the U.S. off the gold standard like we talked about, but it was 2067 an ounce for over 100 years, and then it gets devalued to $35 an ounce in 1934, and that is the gold price that that um that is the gold price that persists into the era after world war ii 35 dollars an ounce all the way up until 1971 so time out yeah was there inflation during that time was gold getting cheaper but you just couldn't Um, buy it so it's like a ruble in the ussr like it doesn't matter what you call the price well, for dollar holders pay it. for dollar holders gold got more expensive but they couldn't not like they could get it but i'm just saying for the years that it was $30 or $35 that was mm-hmm. decades right mm-hmm. decades yeah it was uh from 1934 to 1971 so almost okay, 40 it's like years like 40 years so during that time uh, if if there you would have, if your wages doubled because inflation doubled, then all of a sudden you're making $60 an hour or $60 oh, every day. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Okay, I see what you're saying. But yeah. you just couldn't yeah, buy so it, wage, so it doesn't matter right. what you call it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So so it, that says to me that, that that number means nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that that took me a while to, uh, yeah, to figure so out what you were saying. Yeah, Sorry. but I totally get I it now. Right. And but, yeah, that but, makes sense. But who, so I would, I would posit that not a single transaction took place at $35. Central banks. Oh, so the central banks were getting gold for half price or 10th price. Or they, right. So like that's, the, that's the rub. That's why it was totally holding it steady is like a, you know, was a gift to them. Yeah. So what Bretton Woods said was actually the main point of Bretton Woods was not to technically redesign the international monetary system or like decide what the reserve currency was going to be. The The first section of Bretton Woods founds the IMF. Ugh. Okay. So it was the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development back then. That's oh. th- that's section one of Bretton Woods. Um, so yeah, so Bretton Woods, it establishes the IMF, um, but it, it actually gives the member countries, there's 44 member countries to start out with. And it doesn't actually say you have to peg to dollars. And it doesn't say that you can't have your own gold standard, right? It it doesn't say that. But what it does say is that each 
member country is to come up with a peg either two dollars or two gold. And after 1958, the U.S. dollar will be convertible into gold. So if you're a foreign, again, by foreign central banks only. That's why Murray Rothbard calls this a gold exchange standard. It's not a real gold standard because households and businesses can't turn in their paper currency for gold. It's only the central banks. And so whenever the central banks do decide to convert, there's a political game there, right? So Germany is friendly with the Fed. The Bundesbank is friendly with the Fed. So they're not going to call to redeem their dollars for gold as much. The Bank of England is friendly with the Fed. So they're not going to call the Federal Reserve and try to get gold out of them as much. It's countries like France who went rogue and decided, uh, I think it was 1960. Uh, I think it was 1960. No, no, no. Maybe it was ni- 1971. Um, uh, De Gaulle, the president of France, sends a warship to the New York Harbor to, um, I believe, to to collect balances of gold because the French central bank is accumulating all of these reserves of dollars. And they say, OK, it's been convertible since 1958. We would like some gold, please. And he actually sent a warship in order to go and do that. And they collected gold. So that was one of the problems throughout this era is that France was not playing ball the same way that Germany and England were. And so the, so Bretton Woods is basically um, all of the member countries, which constitutes most of the economic activity in the world at that point. So 44 members, they either peg to gold or they peg to the dollar. And these transactions are going to take place between the central banks in order to maintain these pegs. So if the dollar value of gold starts to drop down below uh, $35 an ounce, then the Fed will buy some gold, increase the demand for gold to put the peg back up to 35 But as we know, that's not really what happened. What actually ends up happening is the other situation where the dollar price of gold keeps creeping above $35 an ounce. And so the Fed has to do all of these special arrangements to try to keep it down. And that's basically this quagmire that the that these 44 central banks and monetary authorities spend their time in for the next uh, two to three decades. So um, when you read the Bretton Woods Agreement, so its stated goals are to lend to countries developing or rebuilding from the damages of the war, promote stable growth, Right. So those are basically the two main objectives. The The world has been ravaged by World War II. And basically, this institution is going to be used to make loans to these countries that need to rebuild. Um, but there's another way to look at the IMF, which is to say, actually, this is a channel for domestic and foreign tax dollars. So the way that the IMF works is that each member country has a stake and that stake comes from a paid up, um, a piece of paid up capital, which was in the form of gold, dollars, pound sterling, uh, what is the German marks, French francs, all of these things. So each member has a stake in the IMF and then the funds that the IMF uses to lend are ultimately derived from the contributions of the member countries. And the contributions of the member countries are ultimately coming from taxers, right? So the way that I look at the IMF is that it's a way of channeling tax dollars from all of the member countries to uh, 
private institutions or government institutions, they can't pay back their loans. And what ends up happening is they have those loans, not to other governments, but to private banks. A lot of times private banks based in London, a lot of times private bank banks based in New York. So this is the long term. What we'll go into detail in part two, you know, the, the, uh, the less developed country crisis, you know, Latin America in the 1980s, this is really what that story like. So you have these international banks that have lent to the developing world, and then they can't pay their loans back. And so the IMF comes in and says, we will restructure your loans. What does that ultimately mean is that the IMF is being used to make damn sure that the developing world pays back these bankers in London and New York. Well, you know. we might also, <clears throat> I have to refresh my memory, but I believe, if I recall correctly, that the IMF was giving loans to Ukraine that funneled through Kolomoisky's bank called Privat Bank. Uh, he owned mm-hmm. Burisma. He also owned the TV station where Zelensky got his, you know, played the president on TV. I don't know if you know Zelensky's uh, I didn't know that, story. but yeah. I didn't know about this so, affiliation with the IMF. Kol- Kolomoisky was affiliated with Zelensky, was affiliated with Burisma, and uh, he had this Pravat bank. Um, and from what I gather, the Hunter Biden thing sitting on the board of Burisma and making a couple of tens of thousands of dollars just to sit there isn't why it's scandalous. It's that mm-hmm. the that IMF money that went filtered through Privat Bank in the billions of dollars disappeared completely. So yeah. I don't know whose finger was in that till, but that might be a thread to pull on if you are looking to see like you know, like the barium or whatever you drink to like watch the radiation get like goes through your body to find the tumors and stuff. Like if you want to see right, how the right, IMF right. works, you might do the Ukraine, <laughs> you know, just yeah. follow the money in Ukraine and you can actually see where where it where it ends up. So next time we'll talk about especially if you're okay with a marathon, we can talk about de-dollarization, CBDC, and we can talk about the IMF and kind of international finance, the next era. When, when we come back, if that's okay with you, did we leave anything out that needs to be right here? Chronologically, the next thing that we're going to hit on is the euro dollar market. Um, so when it comes to the global dollar system, uh, gosh, I hesitate to call, her, call it a system, but the global dollar stable say, um, the euro dollar market is a, is a hugely important part of that and um, not something a lot of people understand. So we'll look at that. How the euro dollar can how the euro dollar contributes to things like the less developed countries' uh, debt crisis in the 1980s, as well as the Asia financial crisis in the 1990s, and all of these different oh. boom bust cycles. And then, um, and then, like you said, we'll we'll um, we'll talk about you know as far as de-dollarization goes, basically up to the 21st century, what what that has looked like so far, and um, you know what's actually plausible and then what is just russian chinese and brazilian government officials complaining because dollars are getting expensive you know and can we talk a little so. bit about cbdc do you have uh oh yeah on totally. that? okay great excellent mm-hmm. thanks that's super great so just rattle off where people i noticed that you had some videos i particularly like the irish dancing one but <laughs> it's not exactly on it's point, probably but... the only one worth watching oh no no <laughs> is that true don't tell me that uh i thought it looked like you had some good stuff out there in nice bite-sized pieces 
So um, would you like to direct people to any of your work or your, you know, if they want to contact you with questions or to see how, uh, you know, however you make your living, perhaps yep. people could uh, benefit from your expertise. So say whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so the, again, really good place to find me is on Twitter. So I'm at SDnomics. That's the letter S as in Sally, the letter D is in dog and then nomics, like the tail end of the word nomics. Um, you can also just send me an email at contact at jpurcell.me. So if you just, if you like email and you want to do it that day, um, and there's literally anything you want to ask about, um, just shoot me an email. Happy to do that. Um, and then, oh, I believe I'll double check. And if it's not, I'll post it. But, um, my YouTube channel link is in my Twitter. So if you I'm just gonna go put all through, this stuff in the show notes too. So okay. and if you want to give me okay. an email with all of that stuff in it, that'd be great. Okay. Cause then everyone can go to Monica's deep com and find the post with the video, with the audio and with all the notes. Okay. Yeah. And I'll put my, uh, Instagram there too. I, I post a lot of, uh, I post some Instagram stories every now and again, if you want to learn about, you know, if there are some financial concepts and terms that you've heard many times, but maybe don't know what they understand. I've got a couple of videos about the yield curve, um, yield curve inversion and what that means and, and actually why it happens, uh, by scenes, um, couple videos about Euro dollar futures. Um, I've got one about like, where interest comes from that, that kind of, like we were talking about earlier, you know, interest versus usury. Um, so those are, those are all on my YouTube channel. If you get curious and, and just want to check it out, I've got one about CBDC. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure that's everything. Okay. That's fantastic. Well, it's been awesome getting your yeah, insights. Yeah. Super, super fun. Not too many people you can chuckle, uh, with about financial history, but <laughs> you might have yeah. reached the limits of my ability to get the jokes, but I do, I do enjoy it. I think it's super fun and interesting. I think we're far from the limit. Yeah. Oh, you think so? You think we could, oh yeah, it actually gets funnier mm -hmm. slash not funny at all <laughs> as we yes, get along. Yes, it will. It will. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's hope we can keep our sense of humor about it. And, uh, and I'm I actually, Stay on the line, as they say, because we need to set up our next meeting real quick. So thanks, everybody, okay. for coming. Thanks so much, uh, Jason Purcell, for sharing your wonderful uh, insight and research. And I just really enjoyed that conversation. I'm really looking forward to the next one. And thank you all for listening. This is Monica Perez.